You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I love Rory Sutherland's work because he teaches you a new way to think. And once you learn that way to think, that's more expansive, it creates room for innovation and accidents and wandering and curiosity, that if you apply that, I think you'll have better results in your career and better results in business. I think because business tends to be reductionist and it tends to be run by engineers and finance people who want everything to be proportionate. We spend far too little time in business looking for small interventions that have a magical effect. This week, we're going rogue and talking about a topic that you don't often expect in discussions on leadership, magic. I'm thrilled to be speaking with legendary ad man and behavioral psychology expert, Rory Sutherland. Rory's book, Alchemy, was hailed by Entrepreneur Magazine as one of the best books of the year when it was first published, and it's one of the most entertaining books on human behavior out there. Rory has been with the famed advertising agency Ogilvy for over three decades and founded the company's behavioral science practice. I've been a fan of his work for many years, and I'm very excited to have him here today. Rory, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure, and particularly good to see a copy of my book just behind your right shoulder. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm a huge, huge fan. I had our whole uh, marketing department at my last company buy that book, like, as soon as I read it. What I didn't expect is it had the audience in marketing and had the audience in entrepreneurialism, which I expected, but there were people in the finance community. And I think it's necessary because we as marketers and advertising people, we spend all our time talking to the marketing communications department. And actually, the rest of business needs to, as I said, you need to spend 10% of your time looking at things from the other end of the telescope. As Roger Martin says, competition ultimately doesn't take place in the factory. You actually win on the shelf. You win in the mind. And I think it's too easy to forget that if you're looking at spreadsheets of kind of productivity figures and so on and so forth. So Rory, I think your book, Alchemy, is foundational for leaders today because you teach people a new way to think so that they can create their own solutions and maybe even a little magic. And best-selling author Nassim Taleb of Black Swan fame calls your book, Alchemy, a breakthrough book, wonderfully applicable to about everything in life. What is it you want us to do differently after reading your book? A few things, I think. First of all, I'll, I'll be very, very clear. I don't see the book as a how-to guide in the sense that it isn't attempting to be a kind of law of everything. But there are moments in business and institutional decision-making, as indeed there are in personal decision-making, where it really, really pays to look at things differently. You know, everybody in every job, however humble or whatever it may be, there are opportunities to fundamentally rethink what it is you're trying to do. In particular, this is particularly important, I think, for business leaders. They need to spend more time looking through the opposite end of the telescope because in a very senior position, you get a very peculiar form of information. It tends to be aggregated. You tend to be overwhelmingly fo focused on big data from the past. And all data is ultimately as a glorified rear view mirror in many ways. And I think it's very, very important at certain moments when certain opportunities present themselves 
that you have an opportunity to rewrite the question rather than coming up with ever more refined answers to the same questions. I always mention the Uber map as an example of alchemy. Now, it came in a kind of epiphany to one of the founders watching supposedly the James Bond film Goldfinger, although accounts do differ, that seeing in the film Bond tracks Goldfinger using a kind of moving dot on a scrolling map in a dashboard of a Aston Martin DB4, and he had supposedly had the epiphany, that's what should happen when a taxi arrives. You should be able to see it on your phone, on a map, and basically know when it's going to arrive, know that it's on the way, and, and maybe tell yourself a story about why it's late. Oh, look, it's stuck at those traffic lights. Now, what's so interesting about that is conventionally, people would try and minimise the duration of the wait. And market research would confirm that was a good idea. People would say, I don't like waiting for a taxi. It's a conventional measure. It's all very quantifiable. It fits very well on a spreadsheet. But it wasn't the real problem. The real problem why people hated waiting for taxis wasn't really a product of duration. It was a product of uncertainty. And so everybody was probably fixated on minimizing the quantity of time spent waiting when they would have been better off actually changing the quality of time, which incidentally is much cheaper to do. And it's based on the fact that quite often businesses are optimizing for measures which don't actually correlate very well with what drives human emotional response and therefore what drives behavior. We've become a sort of data-driven society and data is has become actually more and more unrepresentative because it tends to represent what's easy to measure, not what's really important, which I think creates a fundamental problem of misalignment. And the reason I call the book Alchemy quite simply is that because of the quirks of kind of non-linear, non-proportionate human psychology, it's sometimes possible with literally no more than a few words or a little nudge or a little redirection of attention to turn lead into gold, that something that's bad can be perceived as good if you frame it differently. And this is something that recurs, of course, in great advertising. One of the greatest advertising campaigns of all time is probably for Avis uh, by Doyle Dane Birnbach. We're number two, so we try harder. In other words, you take a weakness and you effectively flip it into a strength by recontextualizing it. Now, a much smaller micro version of this, I was on a plane in this extraordinary instance. <laughs> uh, I don't know how often this happens, but it was a piece of complete psychological alchemical genius on the part of the pilot. The plane was coming into land and we weren't going to be given an air bridge. Effectively, they were going to park the plane in some remote part of the airport and they were going to send buses to drive us back. Now, everybody hates that. You know, everybody feels shortchanged. They feel cheated. But the pilot said something absolutely brilliant, which was a kind of reframing. He said, I've got bad news and good news. The bad news is we haven't been able to get you an air bridge today at a gate. But the good news is that the bus will take you all the way to passport control. So you won't have far to walk to pick up your bags. Now, previously, of course, when you rode on the bus, you were sitting there thinking, I can't stand this. Why couldn't they get us a proper air bridge like a grown up adult airline? And you were completely unconscious of the on-foot journey, the pedestrian journey you no longer had to make because the bus was taking you right next to the place where you picked up your bags. Now, by simply redirecting our attention in that way, by recontextualizing the way we looked at the bus, it effectively turned the bus from an inconvenience into a conveyance. And I think all of us on that bus journey were measurably happier 
as a consequence of that single sentence. You'd turn lead into gold. There are all these cases, I think, where it's very difficult to achieve an order of magnitude kind of magical breakthrough effect in logistics or distribution or whatever it may be. But in psychology, because the brain is a highly complex system and there are butterfly effects all over the place, effectively, these things are perfectly possible. We tend to be looking at business almost using the analogy of a machine. We're very busily optimizing the parts and not the whole, for instance. I think we completely miss, not only in business, but I would also argue in things like public policy and government and the design of tax systems and so on, we're completely missing the opportunity to change the game psychologically because we're obsessed with the objective reality. And this even extends, if you like, into a field like medicine where, and I've got some fairly eminent scientists to agree with this, where I say, what's wrong with the placebo effect? I mean, if you can cure people through the power of suggestion, you know, I'm not suggesting this replaces the need for medication, but you should certainly try it combinatorially. So what's the most effective drug and what's the most effective way in which to present it to maximise the overall efficacy? And this seems to me, you know, the idea that ultimately the end of most business activity is an emotion. One of the phrases I use just to make this distinction is to economists, price is a number, but to consumers, price is a feeling. And you can make the same thing feel expensive or feel a bargain without actually changing the dollar amount you're charging at all. By using, for example, framing or, or a different measure of comparison, you can make an expensive thing seem really cheap. So Rory, I wanna, I wanna go deeper in perception and context because I know these are really big foundational components. But before we get to that, what's your advice for someone who's early in their career and they've been schooled in the dogma of logic and reason and science is the end all be all it's the God of all business success. If you don't go this way. And it seems to me, your argument is you're looking at things one way when, when there's 17 more that you're missing. Can you give some advice on how to deal with that? Yeah. So one of them is what I call the law of one context, which is if you change one variable or introduce a new variable into any problem, you can turn an impossible problem into a soluble problem. And the example I give of the law of one context is, let's take a high school math question, a putative high school math question, which is, I have so many units of gas to heat a container containing one liter of water. Is it possible to boil this water and to boil the container dry using X units of gas containing a calorific value of Y? And the answer, let's say, is no because it would only get the water up to 95 degrees, okay? What are we assuming there? We're assuming effectively standard atmospheric pressure. We're assuming that the container of water is at sea level. On the other hand, take that container of water up a mountain where there's lower air pressure and you can boil the whole thing dry. And what you've forgotten is you've become so fixated on the variables that were contained within the exam question that you've missed the opportunity to solve the problem by recontextualizing it, which you can indeed do, which is go find a mountain or indeed a light aircraft. And so that question where I think people get trapped in a framework which has two or three convenient variables which allow for it to be formed into an optimization problem with a single right answer. And as a consequence, what they're doing is they're effectively optimizing for the wrong thing. What you need to be doing is saying, can you do this? No. Under what circumstances? Or 
I don't know if you're a devotee, definitely interview him if you get the chance, because he's one of my kind of Svengali gurus. Roger L. Martin, he was the dean of the Rotman Business School in Toronto. A brilliant writer, fantastic book called When More Is Not Better. And his great question is, what would have to be true if? Don't ask, can you, can't you, what is optimal under these circumstances? Instead, practice something called abductive inference which is effectively, it's using the subjunctive. Most business uses the kind of active tense, this, therefore, that. And marketing in particular has to use the subjunctive. What if, suppose that, what if someone were to do this, why might they do it? Okay. And it has to be to some degree speculative. It has to involve a leap of the imagination or at least the creation of a kind of hypothesis before you can bring the scientific method then to work. And what we've done is I think we've bypassed that first stage. So what's happened in business is there's the scientific method where you build on what you already know for certain. Now, I would argue it's almost impossible to innovate reliably to the maximum potential of innovation. You'll simply end up mostly with incremental improvement. In other words, I think that in business, a better model for business is we're trying to look scientific because if you look scientific, you never lose the argument and you never get blamed. By contrast, there's something which I would place closer to detective work. I think the mentality of a kind of Sherlock Holmes, a detective, is better than the mentality of a faux scientist because the, the world of business, particularly where psychology involves, is not scientific in the conventional sense. It's not a world where the laws never change. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is to rehabilitate the word anecdotal because anecdotal, for people who are trying to look scientific, is a term of opprobrium. It's a term of abuse. But penicillin was discovered because someone effectively noticed something strange. It had no evidential value when it first happened. But the reason I think the human brain has evolved to pay attention to anecdotes and gossip and things like that is because that's where really significant information emerges first. And I think that's the right way to conduct business, that actually it should be, in a sense, a form of detective inquiry into what is value? How do we create it? What do people appreciate? What, how can they notice it more? And what we've tried to do in business under, I think, the, the heavy hand of the finance function is to try and turn it into a pseudoscience instead. Yeah, and I think everything you're saying, I see a lot of reductionism and oversimplification with things like strategy, innovation, change management, leadership. They're, everyone's looking for the single one right way forward. They crave that certainty. And I think you argue that that level of certainty sort of leaves no room for magic. I think worse still, that because most companies are appraised of much the same market data, and then they average it and they aggregate it, it also leads, again, under the malign influence, I think, of consulting companies who are basically full of engineers trying to optimize efficiency. It makes competing companies more and more alike, pursuing exactly the same market as each other, which actually destroys overall value in a category. In many ways, if you look at really extraordinary companies, you could take Nespresso, you could take Red Bull, you could take Dyson, there was no evidence really no robust evidence that there was a market for any of these products in advance of them existing. There was some sort of leap of belief of faith 
I mean, Red Bull famously, as I said, you'd think that the most successful soft drink to compete with Coke would be really inexpensive, come in a huge can and taste taste nice and Coke. Absolutely not. It comes in a tiny can, it costs a fortune, it tastes disgusting. But if you recontextualize it as a pharmacological product, as something which is psychoactive, Red Bull gives you wings, those very things that are a weakness in a carbonated drink are actually a strength if you effectively turn the drink into a bit of a drug. And in many ways, you know, capitalism should be seen not as an efficiency optimization game as economists see it. It's actually a value discovery game. By the way, I'm very, very angry with the violently anti-flexible work uh, movement because I entirely agree. I don't think working remotely all the time is satisfactory. I, I would broadly speaking agree with that. But the people who say, no, 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 we want you back in the office five days a week, well, what you're doing there is you're destroying what capitalism does best, which is discovering a new form of value exchange. If employees would rather have a degree of autonomy or lower commuting costs than extra money because they value those things more, then to turn your back on a potentially beneficial value exchange which benefits everybody except sandwich bars and commuter railways, okay, that strikes me as absolutely Luddite. Yeah, we did we did a 12-month study on basically leading in a hybrid world. And if I summarize the conclusion, it requires a new set of leadership skills, not necessarily that they're new. I mean, we kind of laughed. The, the leadership skills go back to the ancient Greeks. They're not much different. No. But rising in importance are some things that we have to do in terms of checking in with people and emotional intelligence in a hybrid world. But my conclusion is we don't know what the answer is. Uh, but the answer will be discovered be, by the innovative companies that start to push on what gets to giving people the autonomy and agency they need to do their very best work and, and love their work. So in other words, to, to effectively say we're not going to even participate in this experiment when it does have within it the potential fruit of a 10 15% productivity improvement, okay, and indeed the opportunity to hire people much more widely, all those potential benefits, to turn your back on that strikes me as ridiculous. I feel particularly strongly about this because having worked for an advertising agency, from about 1996 to about 2010, the advent of both the internet and the laptop, we must have made millions of pounds effectively from advertisements showing people using a laptop next to a lake. Okay. It was obviously the dream in a sense. And then to turn your back on this and say, no, 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 no. What are you doing by that lake? You need to be in an office. Now, I, I agree. I agree, by the way. I agree that we, you know, Nick Bloom at Stanford does a lot of work on this. You can't be wholly confident the world will go entirely remote. And I think there's a huge need for co-location some of the time. But the answer is emphatically somewhere in the middle. And not to try and find it seems to me to be just completely risk-averse and crazy. So one of the things I like about you, Rory, is that you teach people how to think. So I don't know how to solve the problem, but I do know one thing that you've talked about with regards to explore and exploit. Yeah. So we hear that all the time. We hear it in computer science, but we hear it in innovation. And I saw you once talk about essentially the yin and the yang, which is that 
maybe you maybe there doesn't need to be a trade-off. No. Maybe you can have both and maybe the have to do both explore and exploit. We're beset mentally by false dichotomies when sometimes the dichotomy is the solution. I think there are all these kind of mental ways in which people are desperate to kind of subdivide the world into its constituent parts. And actually, if you look at it as a whole, you say, no, no, no. I was recently involved in the UK in a kind of debate about getting rid of humans at railway ticket offices. And I kept saying, no, no, it isn't ticket machines or internet tickets or e-tickets versus humans. What you need to do is find the the best harmonic ratio of the two. And, you know, you need to optimize the contrast rather than remove it. We had this in the advertising industry. There was a whole bunch of people who said, you know, analog advertising is dead. Why are you going on the Super Bowl? It's all about, you know, effectively programmatic and performance-based media. And Mark Ritson, a very, very good uh, marketing guru in the UK, said, look, why is it not both? He has this kind of doctrine which he calls bothism which is the ability to accept that two things may be complementary rather than contradictory. Yeah, I love it. So, so Rory, let me ask you, Jeff Bezos said in one of his shareholder letters, sometimes in business, you don't know where you're going. And when you do, you can be efficient and put a plan in place and execute. In contrast, wandering in business is not efficient, but it's also not random. It's guided by hunch, gut, intuition, curiosity, empowered by a deep conviction that the prize for customers is big enough that it's worth being a little messy and tangential to find our way there. And I've seen him interviewed where he talks about wandering. He gets up and kind of putters around in the morning. He drinks coffee and wanders and putters. When I read that, I thought of you. What do you think? Yeah. So a really interesting thing there is what Jeff clearly understands is, as you mentioned, the explore-exploit trade-off, or what I occasionally call the rogue bees phenomenon, that most bees, most of the time, obey the waggle dance. They're told where there's a good source of nectar and pollen, and they go off and fetch it, all very efficient. It's efficient, but few problems. One, you're optimizing on the past. In other words, you're optimizing on the pollen you knew about three days ago, not the pollen that's just appeared in a completely different field somewhere else. Secondly, it's fragilizing. You should really be optimizing for resilience, not optimizing for short-term efficiency. Thirdly, you never get lucky. Right. Because the sum total of your opportunity is what you already know, not what you don't yet know. And bee scientists were kind of confused by this at first because they go, we've had 20 million years of bee evolution. They've been around much longer than us, okay? And yet you'd think, you know, logically that bees would have evolved kind of bee compliance officers, which demanded that every single bee, in order to meet short-term targets, obeyed the waggle dance. And yet they tolerate this pottering. Now, there's a big caveat here. If a pottering bee discovers something, in order for the system to work, it's got to share its find with the rest of the organization. It's got to perform its own waggle dance, which says, hey, you guys, you're fixated with the, the patch of flowers a mile and a half to the northwest. You should see what's down here in the southeast, only 400 yards away. They've got to actually participate in the feedback loop. You can't have them going completely rogue. They've got to actually feed back into the wider hole. But effectively... This is what's called in algorithm design, the explore-exploits trade-off, that there is a trade-off between exploiting what you already know and what you already are good at and exploring what you don't yet know and haven't yet tried doing. 
And the problem is, is that the efficiency mindset tends to see the exploration as an inefficiency or as a cost, and it gets performed too little. Or else that, you know, corporate conformities, effectively reducing everybody's job to a kind of algorithm and a series of set processes, actually destroys the opportunity for happy accident. It's very easy to optimize the waggle dance. You know, the, the, the bees obeying the waggle dance. It's simply energy expended in collection must be less than energy retrieved. Very, very simple, you know, fits on a spreadsheet, all very neat. The mathematics of explore is going to be a bit more complicated and it's going to be a bit more subjective. And yet, if you get rid, the reason there are no bees who are 100% obedient is that any bees that tried that effectively went extinct or they were outcompeted by bees which actually had an explore budget. It's ultimately you're, you're on a hiding to nothing if you try and exploit things that you know already without actually correspondingly exploring what else, what's changed, what's different, what might have happened, and, and what is it that we might just never have envisaged before, but now turns out to be true. So Rory, let's let's do a little explore rather than exploit. Let's assume that many of our listeners they're on a team, right? Five to 10 people and they're working. And the standard mantra is do your job, right? Be good at your role. We have metrics, we have measures, we have key performance indicators. The bee waggle dance is a great example that some bees don't just do that. They go off and explore and find some new things. And without both, you wouldn't have a billion or a million years of evolution or whatever it is. How can we bring that down to a team and doing work tomorrow? Google at one stage formalized that where they kind of gave people 20% of their time to pursue independent projects. In other words, I think your job description, well, it depends obviously on what your job is. There will be job descriptions which are overwhelmingly exploit and there'll be job descriptions weighted towards explore. But I think that giving people a degree of autonomy within a team, in particular the permission to fail within a team, now, I'm going to caveat this. Fail manageably, okay? You don't send 500 bees off to the southeast on the off chance that there might be pollen there if you know there's already pollen to the northwest, okay? But there is that question of simple manageable risk. And part of the reason companies exist is so that actually the happenstance successes of some effectively fund the no less virtuous failures of others. It's effectively a risk pooling exercise. And by separating everybody into their individual components and saying, you must optimize this one thing and we don't care what else you do, whatever contribution derives from the other things you do is irrelevant as far as your promotion and encouragement goes because you're simply there to do that one thing is actually massively demoralizing for the people. And it actually doesn't work. Because one, one of the great phrases of W. Edwards Deming, who'll probably be a hero of yours, was that to optimize the whole, to optimize the whole, you have to sub-optimize the parts. And we don't have a proper mechanism, I think, that understands this. We've assumed that to optimize the efficiency of the whole means optimizing the parts. Now, an example of this, which always occurs to me, okay, one of the things I find a bit suspicious about business attitudes to flexible work is they go, well, we have seen some evidence that when people work from home, they might go shopping. Well, that's irrelevant, actually, if they get their job done. If they want to work in the evening and shop in the daylight, that's not necessarily a productivity problem. That's one thing. Then the other thing is, well, we've seen evidence that actually productivity falls by 2.3%. Now, the reason they're giving it that level of scrutiny is because people actually like it. 
Okay, people actually enjoy it. And so they're automatically suspicious of something that their workforce actually welcomes. Now, I would argue that the wholesale introduction of email into businesses as a communication channel may well have reduced productivity by 10 or 15%. I think email, by turning synchronous conversations into asynchronous conversations so that what would have been a two-minute chat turns into a four-day email exchange, I think it's made decision-making unbelievably glacially slow. It's absolutely empowered bureaucracy. Okay, but because nobody really enjoyed email, no one asked the question, is this actually better? No one's asked that question at all. Open plan office is the same. No one asked any questions. Why? Because staff didn't seem to like it very much and it made them work very hard. So if it's making people really, really busy, even though it's making them busy doing utterly pointless, misdirected things, it's probably fine. Whereas the second you have flexible work and Zoom, which employees actually like, suddenly it's treated with this incredible level of default suspicion. I think email's been a, literally a living nightmare in terms of productivity, and yet no one's attempting to quantify it. The second people are going shopping on Wednesday, my God, we've got to clamp down on this immediately. Let's talk about one of your rules, designing for the average. Why isn't that a good idea in business? Most information is gathered and assembled for presentation upwards. And as a consequence, because the finance people basically just care about talking to investors and saying, on a, you know, on average, effectively, in total, we made this much money. And they either get a little clap or they get told that they need to do better. Okay, But the information that's useful for innovation, for detective work, isn't really that kind of information at all. And averages can be deeply misleading because when we are told the average person does something, we tend to interpret the word average as meaning representative. Therefore, if I optimize for that representative person, okay, I'm doing a good job. Now, in many cases, there are things where the average person doesn't exist or they're woefully unrepresentative of your customer base, which may be a complete mixture of people who are unbelievably loyal and frequent combined with a huge number of people who are unbelievably infrequent in their purchase. It's rather like the terrible thing in economics of the single representative agent. You know, it's in other words, one person to represent the whole panoply of different human circumstances. It's a completely nutty thing. I mean, the thing that struck me as the, the strangest thing in my lifetime in terms of how information was presented, was that every single news story for 25 years portrayed rising property prices as a good news story. It's only of good news if you're a wealthy elderly retiree who's planning to downsize, or your parents have just died and left you a house, okay? In those circumstances, it's good news that property prices went up. For everybody else, people trying to buy their first home or people trying to move out of a small house into a larger house, rising property prices are actually bad news. Rory, I like the way you think and apply to intractable problems. Mm. I want to ask as we wrap up here a, a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what are you curious about and learning now? Oh, gosh. Um, always stay curious. I regard curiosity as a little bit of a kind of that's the only thing, you know, that's the thing you should optimize for. Rory, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks again to Rory Sutherland for joining us today on the podcast. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcast. 
We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced in partnership with Pod People. Our original theme is by Soundboard.